if I'm in a position where I don't know whether I should do something or not, I ask my 90-year-old self and I ask my 90-year-old self, will I regret not doing this? And if the answer is yes, I got to do it. What's up, everyone? It's your boy, Danny Lopriori, and welcome to Off the Cuff. You might know me as the guy from the basement yard, Vine, the Low Priori podcast. And while I love to make people laugh, just know that I've struggled with my mental health for most of my life, just like many of you. Here on Off the Cuff, I will be talking with some of the most impactful influencers, athletes, celebrities, entrepreneurs, and mental health experts to have real, unapologetic conversations about mental health and breaking the stigma that surrounds it. This show is for you, and I'm so happy to have you here. Now, let's talk Off the Cuff. Welcome back to Off the Cuff. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and today I'm joined by number one New York Times bestseller, he is an amazing author. He's also the author of the Bucket List Journal, which I can't wait to talk about. He's also the number two ranked motivational speaker in the world by Global Gurus, which is kind of wild. But it is my honor to have Mr. Ben Nemton on the show today. How are you doing, sir? Danny boy, I'm good. I'm excited to chat. Absolutely. This took a long time, but we made it happen. Hey, man. Anything worth it, it's worth fighting for, is what I say. That's right. First question is... When did you have the desire to write any book? Great question. So guess I've written two books. I'll just call the bucket list journal a book because it's half book, half journal. So long story short, my friends and I started this road trip in Canada. It got this momentum that we didn't expect. Like we went on this road trip to tackle our bucket list and help other people. We didn't expect people to care, but people started to hear about it and they wanted to help. And so they would send us offers to help us cross things off our bucket list. And then they would send us their dreams asking for our help because we did something on our list. We helped someone else. And we just kept doing this summer after summer until we were able to cross off one of the big things on the list, which was make a TV show. And once we did the TV show, we realized that we wanted something that was kind of like a physical reminder of the feeling that we had when we started this that would spark people's dreams. You know what I mean? Like it would actually trigger them to think about what's important to them. And we were really proud of the TV show, but it was on TV and then it was gone. So we wanted something physical that was going to last forever, so to speak. That was sort of like the Bible of your dreams type of thing. So that was the kind of idea for the first book was really, it was more actually about getting this triggering people to think about what's really important to them versus what they think they should do or what other people wanted for them. And in the beginning, we were lucky enough to get triggered by a friend who started a clothing line in high school. I couldn't believe that this kid had done this because I was like, how did you do this? You don't have any experience in fashion. You don't have any money. You just went and did this. He's like, yeah. I was like, well, how did you do it? He's like, what do you mean? I just did it. (laughs) And it made me think, fuck, if he did that, what do I want to do? And I thought I want to make a documentary or a TV show with my friends. And that sparked me to call my friend Johnny, and that's what started this whole project. So the the idea was, what's something physical that can give people that same spark that we had? So the first book was literally, we asked people this question, what do you want to do before you die? Which is the same question we asked ourselves to create our bucket list. It was like, thinking about death makes you think about life because you realize like, okay, I'm not going to be around forever. What do I want to do? And so we asked 
just thousands of people this question. And oftentimes we get these answers that made us feel something, whether it was like we laughed or it made us emotional. or And so we collected all of these dreams and then we got our favorite dreams and then we got our favorite artists to bring those dreams to life. So the, the first book is basically sort of flipping through these dreams, kind of like Post Secret. If you, I don't know if you remember Post Secret, but it was yeah, like yeah, yeah. people sending it. That was Frank Warren who started Post Secret, became kind of a mentor of us. And so our book was similar to his, was very visual. And the idea was it was just supposed to make you feel something when you read these dreams and you saw this art. So the intention was to just make something physical that would give the feeling to other people that we had when we started The Buried Life. Because I remember when The Buried Life, it kind of hit like the late night rotation too. Yeah. So like, I remember just being like a little blazed all the time with my friends and we would watch The, the Buried Life and be like, oh, like this show's kind of cool. That was like, I think I was in the college when that had, that had to be like 2009, 2010, yep. that show. Right. Around that time. Yeah. Okay. The other question that I want to piggyback off of me and my high friends watched it, but how did you make it a collaborative effort with your two friends? Were you guys best friends for a long time? Did you guys meet in high school? Like when did you guys realize that you guys kind of shared a similar dream of crossing things off your bucket list? I didn't know these guys before. I knew of them because Victoria, where I grew up by Vancouver in Canada is a small town. So I knew one because he was two years younger than me in high school and, and the other two kids went to a different school, but I seen them, I'd seen them at parties and stuff. But one of them kind of made these movies and films and just short videos that he would post online. But this is like pre-social media kind of. It was just like 2006. So Facebook had just come out in colleges, but there weren't influencers at the time and social media wasn't like a thing, really. It was just starting. So, But I did see this video that he had made of him and his friends partying at McGill University at Frost Week, which is like the first week of university. It's kind of like the Olympics of drinking where you, you make a team and then you like drink for a week and do all these games, right? And this video, it was like the most inspirational party video. It just made you want to <laughs> go drink and have fun with your friends. And I was like, I want to do something like that. I had made this decision after I had gotten inspired by this friend that started the clothing line. I realized that some of my friends gave me energy and some of them drained me. And some of them were inspiring, just like this kid that started the clothing line. And I thought, I want to try and only surround myself with people that inspire me because I kind of needed to because I was hitting a slump in university. Slump is an understatement. I got depressed and I dropped out of school. I was on the national under 19 rugby team. I couldn't go to practice. So I got dropped from the team. I lost my scholarship from school. I couldn't leave my parents' house. And there were many things that ultimately drew me out of that darkness. But one of the things that was a big factor in that was I made a conscious decision to only surround myself with people that were inspiring. And that conscious decision made me call Johnny to be like, yo, let's make a movie. And he said, I just talked to my friend Dave about something exactly like this. I said, great, you call Dave, I'll call your older brother. And his older brother had come up to me in the bar unrelated and was like, hey, we should do something. I was like, I just talked to your younger brother. Like, let's all get on Skype. <laughs> so we got on Skype because they were in Montreal. Isn't it weird how like stuff like that happens? Like even like in all of my success, all of my success came from like just meeting people, like talking to people and being like, yo, we should do something. And then it has this beautiful effect to actually snowball into something that becomes the biggest part of your life, really. What I think you're doing when that happens, you're following your true self. You don't really know what it is, but this feeling, it's more like an energy that you're following where hmm. you meet someone and you're like, hey, like we should do something. And what that is, is like you're this 
authentic part of you is being drawn to this thing or this person and you're acting on it. And most people don't act on it because of fear of failure or fear of rejection or fear of what other people think. But when you, I think, move through life by following that gut instinct, that authentic self, that true self, whatever you want to call it, life starts to happen for you. Life shows up for you. And that's what I think I've experienced and what you're talking about is once you like kind of act on those little micro moments of possibility, then it opens up more possibility. Organic energy is contagious. It's almost, I don't want to use primal, but in a sense, it's almost like the wanting for human connection. And like you said, being your true self actually comes forward in those kind of moments. Because a lot of times it just starts with a question like, yo, let's do something. And you don't really even know what you want to do. It's just like, you just want to do something creative and scratch that itch. And finding other people to go on that ride with you is like, you know, that's a blessing in itself. You get dropped from the rugby team, you're shut in, you're living with your parents. What was your parents' energy kind of when you were home and going through all that? I mean, they were trying to help, you know, they were just trying to do whatever they could to bring me out of these feelings. It was really fucking hard for them. I had gone from happy-go-lucky kid to being so anxious I couldn't go for a walk. So uh, they tried everything. And, you know, uh, I think it's just really hard to go through your first crisis, your first mental health crisis, because you don't know what is going on. You've never been through it. You think you're broken or it's over or you're fucked up and you don't know what to do because you don't know yourself. You're young. Like you just haven't been through this type of, And then once you go through it, you realize, wow, I really learned a lot about myself through that. Or that actually happened for a reason or yada, yada, yada. You start to realize that this is a a really an opportunity to get to know yourself more. You know, and I think that there's mental illness and there's mental health struggles and those are different. Right. So I don't want to confuse the two, but like people like to blend them without knowing the facts in between of actually what's going on. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the biggest thing is you you need to talk with someone, a professional, about what's going on and ask for help to get that help. That's the biggest thing that I learned was finding a good therapist. So my parents were also trying to play therapist and that wasn't working for me. What did your parents do? My mom was like, she kind of was a therapist. She was a psychologist. That was what she was trained to do, but she did coaching and she did a bunch of stuff. So she was really trying to help. I was just blocking it. I was rebelling against that. Yeah, it's mom. mom. Yeah, it's, it's like, I didn't want that from, yeah. from her. Have you ever taken a sticky sock vacation, as I call them? No, what is it? It's when, when you go into the psych ward. I've done two. I know exactly the feeling of walking down the street, feeling like your heart's going to explode. And you're afraid of the world. Yeah, I have. I have. I absolutely have. Yeah, and that was after my first big depression, the biggest one that I've ever had, which was right after my first year at university. It's a tough age to have that. It is, dude. I just wish there was things that I knew then that I know now. I do a lot of speaking and I don't get to talk to kids too often, but last week, for whatever reason, I talked to two groups of kids. I talked to Boys and Girls Club, their national convention, and I talked to a bunch of kids at this camp in Pennsylvania. And I was just thinking like, what would I want to know at that age? You know, like, what did I wish I, I knew? And one of the things I wish I knew was that the struggles that you will inevitably go through and you're going to go through struggle, you're going to hit like a big one at some point in your first quarter, like the first 25 years. When you go through that, you need to know that one, 
you're not screwed up. Like nothing's broken. And two, that you're not alone. And I know like we hear this a lot now. You never heard it when you knew you and I were in high school, right? Like you just didn't know that other people yeah, no. struggled with depression or that the mental health was a thing. People didn't talk about it. No, you were just a crazy person. You're just crazy, right? And so you didn't understand that then. And I think we hear about it now, but I don't know if we really internalize the fact that like one in four people, at least, that's the people that we know about that talk about it are struggling with their mental health. So I would say probably half the people, one in two people. So just like look around, like half the people you look at are fucking struggling. Going through it, yeah. Going through it. <laughs> Going and through the thing it. is like that. that is on one hand, depressing but on the other hand it's in, it's uplifting because like okay fuck this is a human experience this is what yeah, happens sure. to human beings we have struggles so that's the other thing the big thing though is that when you go through this big struggle you feel like you've lost who you are right mm. you feel like that person that you were before for me the social guy the funny guy the one that made shit yeah. happen the athlete all of a sudden i was like fuck, like I'm done. I can't even imagine being that person again. I've lost those abilities. And the truth Scary. is, you haven't lost those at all. You've just lost touch with those parts of yourself. You're Absolutely. not able to access those, but they don't go anywhere. And you will be able to tap into those moving forward because you don't lose them. You just lose touch with them. And that is so huge to understand because then you don't feel like you can't come back. There's no coming back. It's just coming back in touch with those Yes. parts of you and that's something that i didn't understand but you understand that once you get over that first struggle get through that first patch of troubled water where you then look back and you're like oh not only did i not lose touch with those things but that shit that i went through made me who i am right now it made me stronger it taught me things and it also helped me build a real support system if you actually take action and are proactively trying to get help talking about it. You start to learn habits that are good for you and you start to learn who you are so that you can then catch those signs earlier next time, which is what's yeah. happened with me, right? Like now I've gone through two other big depressions, not as big as the first one because I see it coming. I understand. Okay. I need to take a break. I need to make sure I get sleep. I need to make sure that I exercise. I need to make sure that I hang out with people that are positive in my life. I need to talk with my therapist because now I have a therapist that I like. So you build these habits, you build empathy for other people. But I think like going through struggle, like a depression or some sort of crisis or a, a breakup, right? Same thing. You're forced to look in the mirror. You have to. A lot of people are afraid of self-evaluation. That was always the biggest thing for me is the self-eval is the worst. I'd much rather pay somebody or use my insurance to have somebody eval me. The self-evaluation is really the hardest part for most people. And that's like, in a sense of what you're saying, like showing up, showing up for yourself is kind of taking that time to actually understand why and figuring out some of these triggers that you have going on in your life and what's actually pushing you into this depressive state, because it's not something that happens overnight. I feel like a lot of people just wake up one day and they'll be like, I'm depressed. I'm like, well, this has been leading up to this. What's been actually causing this entire thing to lead up? Yeah. And what I've realized is what has caused a lot of these feelings of depression for me in the past, there's a pattern that I realized is that in these moments, when I go through these struggles, a big part of my life, I'm not in alignment or I'm not authentically doing something in my life 
that I really need to be doing. For instance, like I'm in a relationship that is not right. I'm working on a job or something that is not right. These are signs that these are my body telling me you are not living in alignment. So there's something in your life that you need to check yourself on. And usually what that means is you need to make a hard decision and you need to take a step that's uncomfortable, like leave the relationship, leave the job, or have a conversation that's really fucking difficult. And those are the things that we are suppressing and we become, we feel suppressed and depressed, I think, because we are not being our true self. We're suppressing our true self and that makes us feel this feelings of depression. I always feel this way, even in a sense, even when I do this show, do you ever have a moment when you're on stage and like, you're kind of depressed, but like, you kind of have to give a speech about like not being depressed. Yeah. Cause listen, it's a lot of people, they see the glamor of the whole thing. You know what I mean? They see like, oh, here comes Ben, good looking guy. I think he has a presidential day date on his left wrist. They see you. It's like, oh, he's got a great smile. He's doing this. Like, do you ever have those moments when you're on stage and it's just like, I don't want to fucking be here. You know, like in a sense of like, because you're so depressed, you want to be there in the moment with your crowd, with the people that came to see you. Is it something that you will say on stage being like, listen, I'm going through it right now because I do stand up. I did a show in front of 400 people and three quarters <laughs> through the show, I started to have a panic attack and I just told them. Wow. Yeah. I just put it in my set. So I just did the last like 15 minutes panic filled set. And like, yeah. I had to be like super transparent for you. What's that kind of like when you're actually going through something, but then also have to go out there and perform? One example is I started to feel like a fraud. You know, I started to feel inauthentic because I was talking about things that I wasn't, I wasn't walking the walk. And to be totally transparent, it was around a relationship that I was in for a long time. And part of me deep down felt like something wasn't right. And it was funny that it came up during the talks. This was like some of the first moments when I started to recognize what this feeling was. And it was a very subtle kind of like pang that I would get in deep depths of my gut. And I started to pay more attention to it and then talk about it and turns it out like it wasn't the right relationship and separating was the best thing for both of us in so many ways. But what I also noticed when I was going through a really tough time, I would say about three years ago, and I was struggling. But when I went up and spoke, it was the one part of my life where I felt like I was really doing what I was supposed to be doing. And I really felt like I was in control. And I felt back in my power. And it almost re-energized me for the rest of the day or the week because I thought, shit, like everything's going to shit. But in this moment, this is what I, I know I'm supposed to be doing this. I what know a this blessing is what that is. And so that was empowering because even though I felt exhausted because maybe I wasn't sleeping or I was a wreck, I could pull it together because it just felt like I was supposed to be doing that. So that was interesting for me because it, I realized that's my true course, right? So The Buried Life is named after this poem called The Buried Life that my friend Johnny was assigned to an, an English class at McGill University while we were trying to figure out what this thing was. Because again, as you said, we didn't know what we were doing. We just wanted to do something. We wanted to make a movie. We didn't know what the movie was about. At that time, Johnny gets assigned this poem called The Buried Life, which talks about 
the same feeling we were feeling, which is like the day-to-day. No, we have these dreams, but they're buried. And they get buried by life. They get buried by the day-to-day. They get buried by work, by school, whatever. And we have moments when we're fired up and inspired to go after those things, but then life gets in the way. So there's this line in the buried life. This is actually in the bucket list journal. It opens the journal and then it, it closes the journal. But there's this line about following your true original course. And I just like always think about that because I feel like we all have this true original course that is meant for us to follow because we all have these gifts and these abilities and these ideas and these talents that only we have. And I think we have a responsibility to act on those things, not only because we will regret not acting on them at the end of our life if we don't, but also because we're the only ones that can bring these to life, when we share these gifts, when we do these things, when we act on these ideas, it's a gift to the world. And I think that if more people did what they love and followed that true original course, it would inspire other people to do what they love. And that's what we found when we started this journey was like, we thought it was selfish to have a bucket list and just go after all the shit we wanted to do. We're like, no one's going to care. So why don't we make a movie about helping other people achieve their bucket list items? And that's what the original film was going to be about was basically helping other people. But what was unexpected is that people, they started to feel inspired to go after their list just by watching us. And so we realized there's this ripple effect that happens that when you do what you love, you inspire other people to do what they love. So it's like a, it's a win-win. You get to do the stuff you want to do and you get to inspire other people. And then I realized, well, that's what happens with my buddy who started a clothing line, right? He just did what he loved. He's such a young age. Just did what he loved. And inspired us. And then the show inspired a bunch of other creators, musicians, athletes, influencers to do their thing that have created a much bigger impact than we have. But it's not even us. It's it's our buddy that started a clothing line. Is the clothing line still around? No. And that's the beautiful thing, I think, is that you could look at that and you'd say, oh, that was a failure. But was it? Because it inspired so many people to do their thing and make this huge impact. So of course not. That's why I think there's no failures. Do you still talk to them? Yeah. It's awesome. The other thing too, I wanted to talk about too, accountability partners. I feel like there's a fine line in between like overstepping. Is there a line of overstepping when it comes to being an accountability partner? What's your definition of it, of an accountability partner? And how do you kind of use a gauge on how, who's going to be your accountability partner? So I think accountability is overlooked in its power to drive you towards your goal. So if you look at the research, there's three big barriers that we can talk about. One of the barriers is there's no deadlines for these goals, these bucket list items, your dreams, your passions, your hobbies. They're all the same thing to me, right? But like the thing that you want to do, what's the deadline? There is no deadline. So that's why something always pops up that has a deadline because life has deadlines, work has deadlines, school has deadlines. So you push it and you push it and you think you have a lot of time, but 76% of people on their deathbed their biggest regret is I wish I would have lived for me. So people regret the things they didn't do, not the things they did. So in reality, the deadline is your death and it comes quicker than you think. Because there's no deadlines, you have to create accountability to force yourself to do those things and take that step forward and move through the fear of the unknown. And so it is so powerful. I would never have done any of these things if I hadn't done it with my other buddies, right? Like they made me do things that I didn't want to do. This whole project started because 
I did it with them. So that's one example. So how do you create accountability? Well, you write your bucket list because then you take ideas that don't exist, these thoughts, and you make them real. You write them down. It's like a contract with yourself. Seems small, but it's powerful. Second thing is you talk about your goals. So you share your list. So if, for instance, if you talk about on your podcast that you're, you are going to do something, you're going to run a marathon, you're going to write a book, you're going to interview this person. You then wake up and think, fuck, I better do this because I said I was going to do it. And now all the listeners are going to be waiting or I'm gonna, they're going to ask me. So that's also powerful to, just to share your goals. But like you said, I think the most effective, and again, this is from research out of Cornell by a, a psychologist named Tom Gilovich, who wrote this paper called The Ideal Road Not Taken. He found that you're, you're 77% more likely to achieve your goal if you send regular updates to an accountability buddy. So to answer your question, wow, hmm. you decide what works for you for the accountability buddy, right? So if I'm like, Danny, I want you to be my accountability buddy. I want to write a book by the end of the year. Every month, I'm going to send you a chapter and I just want you to read it. Let me know what you think. Even if you don't, let me know what you think. I just want you to read it. And so by me sending you that chapter once a month, that's going to drive me forward. If I'm like, Danny, I'm going to run a marathon. I want, can you do it with me? I need a training partner. I wake up. I don't want to train. You're at the gym waiting for me. I'm going to fucking go to the gym. That's how it works. So like, whether it's you send regular updates or Danny, you're checking in on me saying, Hey, where's the chapter? You know, you said you'd send it. You just don't want to look bad, right? You don't want to let people down. That's most of the thing too. Like I'll let myself down all the time. Letting other people down, hits different. It just hits different. And that's why if you think about the workplace, all it is is just layers of accountability. You have a boss that keeps you accountable. You don't want to look bad. You don't want to let down your team. You don't want to lose your salary. Again, that's why like in the bucket list journal, for every goal, I say, what's your reward when you achieve the goal? Like, what are you going to do for yourself? Or what's the win? And so that is also something that you can do to create accountability is to set a deadline or, or, and give yourself a reward as well as choosing an accountability buddy. In a sense, kind of have not, not an obsession with death, but you're very comfortable with death. I'm somebody who's like that as well. I feel like in a sense, the more comfortable I got with death, the more things I started to achieve in my life. Can you talk about a little bit your relationship with death and the thought of death? And how do you keep it from not being morbid and being transformational and inspirational? It's a really good question. I think an important thing to talk about because we just don't talk about death enough, I think. I think that even like just as North Americans, we don't talk about death nearly as much as other most cultures around the world. And it's normalized. And it's if you think about it, it doesn't make sense why we don't talk about it. It's the only thing we can count on. Oh, yeah. The only thing we can count on is that we're going to die. And if we're lucky, we'll live to be whatever the average age of death is, 79 or 80 or whatever. Hopefully. Yeah. Like, I think it's interesting, too. And this happens to me all the time. When I see an elderly person walking down the street, they're hunched over. They can only see the ground. They're walking with their cane and shuffling their feet along. Not for a second do I think, oh, fuck, like, that's going to be me. I don't even think about it. I don't right. even, it doesn't even cross my mind. I just carry on with my day. That is the only thing that I can count on is that I will be old and I will die one day. And everything else you cannot count on. So with that in mind, it's like once you truly accept that, it's actually 
liberating because it puts your life in perspective. You don't worry about the shit that you shouldn't worry about. And you hear about this all the time. I had a near-death experience and then everything changed. Oh, yeah. Or my husband or my wife died and everything changed or I lost this person and suddenly like I lived differently after that. Why does it take a traumatic experience to wake us up to the fact that we're going to die? When if we can just remind ourselves that we're mortal, right? Like we will die. Then you start to think, okay, I'm going to die. That's going to happen. That's part of life. So what do I want to do with the time I have? And how can I keep the things that are truly important to me close to me so that I can take intentional steps towards those things every day? And that's what a bucket list Mm -hmm. does is it helps you define what's important to you. Because when I talk about a bucket list, I'm not just talking about skydive or bungee jump or travel to Europe. I'm talking about all 10 categories of your life. And a lot of the times I'm thinking about the, the regrets that you have at the end of your life and how to reverse engineer your life so you don't have those regrets. And that means, you know, telling people how you really feel. That means taking time to live for you, not working so hard. One of the top five regrets is I wish I would have stayed in contact with friends. So relationships, what relationships are important to you? So you you have time to dedicate to invest in those. So I think that if I can remind myself that I'm going to die at least once a day, you know, I'm winning. (laughs) Like you'll see on the, I have this board over on my kitchen. And right now it says, what if this was your last one? What if this is my last one? And and I start to get worried about shit. And I'm like, I'm not even going to remember this no. on my deathbed, let alone in a week. I'm probably not even going to remember this. So why am I worried about it? Why am I stressing out about it? So you can use your future self as this barometer to be like, okay, is this important, right? Whether it's, should I be worrying about this? Also, should I do this? Like if I'm in a position where I don't know whether I should do something or not, I ask my 90-year-old self. And I asked my 90-year-old self, will I regret not doing this? And if the answer is yes, I got to do it. I got to try because I don't want to have those regrets. But keeping death close to you, I think, is really powerful. And also with your loved ones, too, you know, having conversations with your family about important things about their death before they are on their deathbed is so important, not just from a financial perspective, but from an emotional perspective to make sure that you understand what they want and what you want. And so there's, I I talk to my dad about death all the time. My dad's a two time heart attack survivor. So when you were talking about those moments of being like, Oh, I got to do better. He lost like 110 pounds after his first heart attack. And he was like, the only thing you would ever say is like, I should have just did the shit sooner. I don't know why I waited until I had a heart attack to do it because I want to know the best version of himself. Like while he's here, like, I don't want to like get to know my dad when, you know, God forbid he's sick or my mom, like when they're sick, like talk to him about it. Now I literally had to stop texting a friend of mine today because I said, my mom's calling. I want to be present. It's little stuff like that. You know, my dad just turned 70. So like, I I know exactly what you're saying and what you're, you know, trying to convey with that. The hardest thing for me though, is sometimes getting people to kind of match up with how I kind of feel about death. Do you run into that at all, just in your main circle, or is it something that you try to keep mostly to yourself and almost like on a professional level, like how we're doing now? Is this something that you kind of preach to the people around you, close to you? You know, I said the thing that changed my life is in the beginning was surrounding myself with people that inspired me. Hmm. 
So I still subscribe to that and it, and it continues to shape my life. I'm drawn to people that energize me, that are inspiring, that want me to win, that make me think I can do greater things because I see them doing great things. And because I know them, I think, well, they did that. Like, wow, I guess I could probably do something pretty cool because I know they're not that much different than me. And with that, I think comes this way of living that is in line with what we're talking about, which is, you know, taking advantage of the moment and having as much fun as possible, just going for it, not being really afraid of what other people think and being intentional about the people you're hanging out with and the things that you're spending your energy on and making sure that you're moving towards the person you want to be and the things that you want to do. I do talk about death with my friends, but I'm not like, we're not talking about all the time, but I think that we're just like this whole project started as a bucket list and now it's a way of life, right? It's it, instead of, it's not about crossing things off your list. It's about living aligned with your true self because your list represents all the things that you truly want. And it means that every day you're making decisions based on what you truly want and what's best for you so that you can serve others, make your biggest impact and have as much fun, right? I surround myself with people that live like they know death is imminent. Like it's something that is there. Well, that's so that's, what a bucket list is, right? Yeah. You know, that's why, you know, before you kick the bucket, that's the stuff you want to do. And and for those that don't know who, you know, might be a little young listening to this, kick the bucket means before you die, you know, kick the bucket is dying. So I want to get into the bucket list journal, right? Second book. Okay. The thing I wanted to actually praise you for is the font size. These are small things that I do when I read books. The font size, I love that you have inspirational quotes in here. I got this book sent to me like a week ago, right? These dreams belong to Danny. As somebody who is afraid of the workbook, there are some people that are afraid of the workbook. For those who are afraid of the workbook, what makes the bucket list journal different from all these other workbooks that you see out there on Amazon's front page? What makes yours different? Because it's not that it necessarily everything has to be so different, but what's your spin on it? Like I just said the same thing. Like uh, I said the thing about font. I'm a big font guy. If the font is appealing to me, I have more of an inclination to pick it up and actually have fun and partake in it. Were these like necessary things that you actually thought about? Like, I wanted this to be this way. I want the font to look that way. These are the type of things I, I that go through my mind. So yeah, I think that's exactly what I think is different about this journal compared to other journal is the thought. Like I just thought about this a lot because I wanted it to be really useful, but it, there was nothing out there that represented what I was trying to make because this isn't a journal where it's the same page, rinse and repeat a hundred times. It's part my story. It's part education about the actual barriers that stop you from achieving these goals based on the research. And then it's a process to overcome those barriers also based on research, but it's my way of doing it through these techniques that have just worked for me. And I think that sometimes when you write your bucket list, it's like overwhelming because you just think, well, okay, I'm just supposed to put all of my dreams and hopes and desires onto a page that I've always wanted to do for the rest of my life. That's kind of a daunting task. So 
to break it down in a way where there's a process that gives it some structure is always helped for me. Like I'm someone that likes structure. And so you write your list in those 10 individual categories. So first you write your travel and adventure goals, but then you write, how do you want to give back? You write your mental health goals. Like what do you want to do to reduce stress, to increase your well-being, physical health goals, financial goals, relationship, creative goals. Obviously like creativity is important to you. I think creativity is an overlooked pillar of wellness because when you're creative, you are expressing your true self. And again, I keep talking about the same thing, but this is really what it all comes down to in my mind is being your true self. So, you know, don't undermine these things that you think are small, that you sort of justify to yourself and others aren't important. Like maybe it's learning the guitar or singing lessons or art classes or pottery or poetry or stand up or tennis lessons, like anything that's going to bring you that sense of flow and being in the present, right? That means you're being your true self. And so you break down that process and you start to write your list in those 10 categories and then you get over the barrier. So, you know, as you see in the back, there's pages for every list item you start, you start a before and after. So it's like, why is this important to you? So identify the why, understand what keeps you accountable. You need an accountability, buddy. you need a deadline, you need a reward. So you start to build these things. And then I just, I want it to be something that you wanted to keep forever because this is where your dreams live forever. So I wanted like a really nice linen cover and it, it feel really quality. Yeah, it feels so nice. The pages are thick and there's that page with all the doodles, right? I got my buddy in Australia to doodle all these dreams. And, you know, these are some of the, the quotes that I've collected over the last like 15 years. They're just like, these are bangers. You know, like, yeah, no, yeah, no, that's why. Yeah. Some, sometimes it just takes a couple of written words to kind of kick you in the ass a little bit. The thing I love about this book, though, too, towards the end is I didn't want to fill it out until I spoke to you and got to know kind of your essence as a person. I don't know if that sounds weird, but that's just kind of how I am. You know, in the professional world, I like to get a feel for people. I feel like uh, I've always had a good feel for people. So as I begin this book, what can I expect? towards the end of this book. Is there anything specifically I should be looking for within myself by the end of this book? Or is it open to interpretation? Is it almost a Sopranos-like ending in terms of where I want to go with it, however I want to look at it? What's your main goal for the people that are starting this book and the people that get to those blank pages at the end? I don't necessarily want people to finish the book because I think that huh. you know there's room for 100 dreams and I think that you can have a hundred dreams, but you don't have to, but you can have 10 dreams. I, I just want you to make sure that the things you're writing in that book are important to you and you're not doing them because other people want you to do them. You want the validation or the props from other people. You want to look good because this is just like, I feel I wanted to create a safe place for your dreams because they're so easily shat on like they're so easily diverted we're so easily swayed by other people's opinions my hope is that you first just take the time to stop and think about what those things are because that's the biggest piece is like a lot of times we don't even know that we're living for other people like for me the reason i got depressed in university i i was so confused because i was living the dream i had academic scholarship i was on the national rugby team i was crushing it a lot of friends and then in hindsight, I realized, well, I was living the dream, but I wasn't living my dream. I was living the dream I thought was the dream. And what I realized is my dream 
was actually being creative, you know, creating these different things, like projects, TV shows, books, and going on this completely separate journey. And the depression, in hindsight, I'm very grateful for because it forced me to pivot. If I wouldn't have had the depression, I probably would just be playing like mediocre rugby and fucking Regina. <laughs> like, <laughs> it just would not have been a good luck. <laughs> I feel you. Have you ever thought about shipping books with cool pens? Ooh, I have. You know, I'm an idea guy and <laughs> I feel like you're a doer. You know what I mean? I'll be on the couch, like, you know, eating some kind of chip, but I'll throw a good or cool idea out there every once in a while. Your ideas guy. Your idea. I always do your ideas guy. Yeah. I know a couple of people with money. I might be able to get some funding. You know what I mean? But like, you know, other than that, I don't know how much I'm going to do for you, but like maybe shipping it with a pen. But is that kind of the part of like the marketing is go get your own pen. I like the idea of a pen. I, I thought about it. Okay. I thought right. about it. I, I don't, did you get the box that it came in? I got the box. Yeah. The box. It, yeah. So it started with the box. I think that it would be, I wonder if there's a way to do a pen that like reminds you you're going to die. You know, like maybe it's like a, a countdown or something. That'd be cool. You got to come up with a cool pen. And then the sequel to this will be the unfinishable book. Yeah, there you go. Maybe it's a pen. And that's the whole thing with books. People are like, oh, I got to finish this book. Guess what? You're not going to finish this book. It's the right. unfinishable book. And then if somebody does like 150 dreams, you know, they get to like hang out with you for a day or something. They get another, free, they get a free pen. They get a free pen. They get a free death pen. That's what it is. They'll probably be dead by the end of the yeah, book. Yeah, they, they'd probably be dead. They get to live another 10 years. Yeah, because I've always thought that when people make these amazing books, this I could rub this book all day. Like I almost don't even want to open the pages, to be honest with you. <laughs> but I always felt like, where's the pen? Yeah, I like, I like the idea of a pen. Hey, you know, don't get, don't give me an excuse. Yeah, I'm an ideas guy. guy. Don't give me an excuse to not get started. Bounce that pen right off my hand, dude. Get in there and start writing, baby. <laughs> Last question I have for you. What's your day-to-day -day like? What's a guy like you do? You wake up same time every day. Do you flip-flop a little bit? you eat the same thing every day? Do you run the same amount? Do you lift? What do you do? Most days I'm on the road speaking, so I'm going to talk about a day that I have at home like because i'm home yeah, yeah. Days, yeah. most of the time i'm on the road speaking and i try and like just take care of myself on the road because travel is rough so i i make sure i work out i try i travel with like supplements or athletic greens or element to stay hydrated and different you know i have an aura ring which i actually like i'm wearing it right now it's like tracks your sleep i found that really helpful i thought i would obsess about it and i would actually make me worried and anxious about my sleep but it actually keeps me accountable which has been a I got an accountability ring too. This is not electric. You know what I there mean? You go. Yeah, yeah. Back to my sleep as well. But so you're a very fit guy. You kind of have your days. What's like, uh, you eat the same thing every day? Do you switch it up? So I sleep. Sleep has been more and more important to me. I sleep with an eight sleep, which is like a cooling mattress. I found that to be actually a, a big game changer for my sleep quality. I used to sleep with a chili pad, which is sort of like a, a first gen of like the cooling mattresses. But eight sleep like pumps cold water through your mattress and it tracks all your biometrics as well. I usually sleep hot. And so when I cool down, I sleep way better. So I sleep with an eight sleep and I get up and I have a cough. I try and have it like 30 to over 30 or 45 minutes after because after listening to enough Huberman, I guess the consensus is you don't want to have coffee right away. Wait 45 minutes, go outside, get some light, natural light into your eyes and for you know, five, 10, 20 minutes, and then have your coffee for five minutes. Have a coffee, 
And then I'll make a smoothie with a bunch of different stuff that I've kind of been like adding over the years, but it's everything from like greens and some protein and a bunch of other stuff. I'm not like militant with this, you know, if I'm hungry, I'm hungry. I eat. And I've been trying to lately gain weight. So I, I, I changed my workout to doing like three sets of like only five reps of really heavy weight and then waiting a minute to three minutes in between each set and just doing like how tall are you six two yeah six two how much do you weigh 175 what do you want to be 185 190 or do you want to push 200 no yeah 185 yeah 180 185 tennis is my favorite thing to do so i still got to be able to rip around the tennis court absolutely six two 180 175 180 sounds good to me brother yeah yeah it's pretty good, but I would just, you know. No, it's always good to have a goal. I used to be 200 when I was playing rugby, but I wasn't as as nimble. And so I'm playing around with that. And then uh, I try and get a tennis game in every couple of days. And then I'm at my computer most of the time, right? Yeah. I'm just working like I'm, you know, I had 150 keynotes last year. So when I'm not traveling, I'm either like on a call with a client, talking with them about the event or doing logistics or talking with new clients about a potential event. And then I've got like the journal sales and then, managing the, cause I like run this from production in overseas to fulfillment in LA, ship them out, blah, blah, blah. And then like I did my first merch drop, which is like really fun. So I'm trying to have more space for that creative stuff and then working on stuff in the future. And like we've crossed off our sort of like my list of a hundred is like 96 done, but the two that I'm working on one is go to space. Please tell me you're going to space, dude. When I saw the space and make a film, I was like, yo, if this guy goes to space, he's the fucking man. Yeah, bro, it's happening. It's happening in like 2025, 2026 with this company called Worldview that takes eight people in a, a little a pod. They've, been, they've done over 100 stratospheric flights and they take you up to the edge of space. So you don't experience zero gravity. You go right up to the edge and you get to chill. No rocket. It's very relaxed. No floating around. You can go up there and say you went to space. God damn it. Yeah. That's why I tell that's, people all the time. Are you going to combine, make a film and go to space? I, maybe it's going to be in. Yeah. But that's the big dream is make a film and do the documentary that we started. So it should be in there. An idea, guy. That's what it is, man. Yeah. <laughs> ben goes to space. I want to say thank you so much. I know you're super busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to come hang out with me today. Thank you. Last right. question. Absolutely. I ask everybody on this show is, are you happy today? I am happy today, even though I didn't get much sleep. But the reason I'm happy today, so I just started dating someone. I'm really excited about what we have going on. And I couldn't sleep very well. And there was some things on my mind. And I ended up waking up my partner and just being like, I can't sleep. And she was like, what's going on? I was like, I don't know what I really want to like talk about right now. It's the middle of the night. She's like, what's going on? And I started to talk about it. And I shared these things that were on my mind. And we ended up having a really great conversation about things. It was like our first kind of like, there's things that are happening that we need to talk about, right? Because it's been about a month or two. And it made me feel so much better. Just even, and and I thought I was going to be exhausted because I didn't really sleep last night, but I actually am not. And I went to the gym this morning. I, I linked up with my buddy who's at the gym. So we worked out together and I feel good today. But I think it was because of the, conversation. I think like I'm learning a lot about honesty in relationships and being transparent and being open and trying to do that from the very beginning of the relationship. And that's not just like being open and honest, like about the obvious things that you might think of 
I think it's about like noticing your feelings and being present to those feelings first and foremost, which is hard for me to actually like feel the feelings and then to talk about them proactively about what is bubbling up and what is happening before it becomes like a first sexual thing. So that's been a cool learning experience. I love that, man. They're super proud of you, bro. Like, you know what I mean? It's, when I found out you were coming on the show, I was like, where the fuck? I was like, where the fuck do I know this name from? And then I was just like, all right, hold up. Let me do like a little deep dive. My producer sends me notes and stuff. I was like, dude, I used to watch this guy's show fucking blazed. Yeah, all totally. I love that you used to watch the show stoned. It's so <laughs> I used to watch the show high all, all the time. Because yeah. I don't know, it just unfolded a different layer for me when I was blazed and watching. I was like, this show's really cool. Yeah, bro, you don't remember because you were high, but you were inspired. <laughs> I was inspired. I was inspired. Where can everybody find the book? The book is at on Amazon. Search the Bucket List Journal on Amazon, or you can go to writeyourlist.com. It's right there, you know, right or there. Instagram. I have it on my Instagram at Ben Nimpton. All right. He's coming for the number one spot, guys. Just letting you guys know. He's coming for that number one spot. But guys, go check him out. at It's at Ben Nimpton. At, at Instagram, no underscore, nothing like that, right? We'll put it in the link and all that stuff. But guys, thank you for watching another amazing episode. Go check out Ben everywhere. Is The Buried Life available anywhere, like on Paramount Plus or any anything? You nailed it. You're an ideas guy. I knew you were. You know what? I know MTV and Paramount Plus got the deal. Yeah, you guys, Paramount Plus... If you got it, you can watch it for free there. You can also get it on Amazon. Love it. Love it. And uh, guys, follow us everywhere at 101 OTC on the interwebs. I'm your host, Daniel Priori, and this has been Off the Cuff. Thanks for joining me on another episode of Off the Cuff, presented to you by 101 Life. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and send us some love with a review. And don't forget, we're all in this together, and you're never alone. Peace. Fate Entertainment. Ah!